Kelly Jackson, you have a new book called American Radicals. What years does your book cover in its history? Well, the earliest uh, event in the book <clears throat> is, is in 1817, but the, it, it, it covers roughly the period from 1820 through the 1870s. And this period is described, and people thought of it as the Second American Revolution. Why is that? Yes, well, these these the the radicals in my book were calling for a second American Revolution. They felt that the first revolution, the American Revolution that we know, um, which had been fought by their father's generation and and their their grand, many of them actually had grandfathers who fought in the revolution. But they described that revolution as merely political. They felt that it had accomplished a separation from England. It had accomplished the the foundation of a of a new political system, um, but that the social revolution um, that they had in mind would have to follow that merely political revolution in order to really bring into American life the ideals of the founding um, that had to do with equality, that had to do with justice, and that were really glaringly um, not, um, not part of lived American experience, even in this new land that was supposed to be devoted to radical freedom. Why was the Declaration of Independence so important to these people? Uh, well, I think for a number of reasons. It is a kind of a touchstone in, in the book, um, a document that is quoted by all of these uh, activists and is rewritten a number of times by uh, the women's movement and by uh, anti-slavery activists, by labor activists, uh, really by uh, by John Brown, by, by a lot of different uh, uh, figures. And in part, I think it reminds people that the nation, the very founding of the nation, was done with a radical manifesto. Um, that it was an act of protest, and I think that they were—they they thought that it was a powerful protest technique to hold Americans to their own standard, um, to say, surely these are our values, these are our political values, as stated in our founding document. Um, and they wanted to be true to it, and they wanted to um, rewrite it to kind of extend and kind of—they wanted a kind of rolling revolution where the, the values of the American Revolution— um, could be uh, modified moving forward. And they actually felt that the Founding Fathers had built that in with the amendment system. Um, and um, I think it also brought attention to the fact that the country started as a kind of a radical experiment. It was going to be a new kind of community that uh, the people would make up together and that uh, it, it was very recent. I mean, at the, we're talking here about you know, the beginning of the 1820s. This is, this is very recent. Um, for the people living at that time. And there was a feeling that it could be done again, maybe better. So I make the case for people listening to us. Why would someone living today care about this period of time? Why should they care about it? Well, I mean, the Civil War period is, I mean, I mean I'm a specialist on, on the 19th century, so of course I think it's the most, uh, the most kind of important, crucial moment uh, of our history that you really should know something about to think about America in any subsequent period. Um, but in terms of thinking about this period, reframing it as a period of kind of a golden age of activism and of social justice mobilization, uh, we're living in another such moment, I think, where Americans are um, coming out and getting engaged and politics is feeling a little bit less like a spectator sport for people on the left. And um, that a lot of the same social issues that the book covers uh, are still the ones that are relevant today. People in this book were really outraged by issues like family separation and like um, sexual assault on women 
and uh, the devaluation of black lives, et cetera. And um, this period uh, provides a really crucial precursor uh, to our own moment. So a couple of touch points that you uh, write about uh, that I wanted to put on the record. First of all, 1824, the first election without a founding father. On the ballot. Right. Why was that significant to people? <clears throat> so people think of the 1820s or the, the Jacksonian period as a period of democratization in American politics. Um, voting requirements were loosening up so that you didn't have to be a property holder to vote. Um, so people were, were welcoming an era of universal male suffrage, which meant uh, universal for white men. Um, so there was a feeling that, that um, the, a kind of like a populist politics was taking hold um, in the 1820s. And it was also significant, that election was also significant because the founding generation was um, passing away. So the introduction starts on the 4th of July, 1826, uh, which was, which they called it the Jubilee. It was the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence um, and the, the, the birth of the United States. And on that day, um, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died, famously, um, which people took to be um, some sort of a, um, possibly a message, like a divine message. Um, but it also, it, it also definitely suggested a, a passing of the guard moment that some people felt a great deal of anxiety about. The founders had uh, been there and, and had seen the revolution, had uh, engineered this new political system, and then had shepherded the country through for a period of time. And this was a moment where a new generation was going to have to, uh, if the nation was to survive, a new generation was going to have to take on the challenge of that perpetuity. And it was in a moment when it increasingly that kind of the, the sectional crisis over slavery was really heating up after 1820. And so the obstacles to that uh, continuity uh, were felt very acutely. Uh, during that time, also the Marquis de Lafayette, famous Revolutionary War hero, right. made a triumphal tour of America. Yes. Uh, how widely was that covered uh, in the American press as it exists in that time? And what did it mean to people? It was the event. He, so he was called the nation's guest, and everywhere he went, uh, he the entire entire towns closed down business and turned out. There were massive parades. He was welcomed in all of the states, and uh, and people were weeping openly, and there and they were throwing flowers from every window, and they were pulling him with you know six white horses and beautiful carriages, and he was welcomed, of course, by the president and all of the. Um, all of the uh, the living presidents and all of the Washington elite and the cultural elite everywhere. Um, and for my purposes, what's interesting about that is that he, he is a link, um, a, a personal link to that revolutionary history. And when he came to the United States um, in 1824 to start this triumphant kind of victory lap tour around the nation's 50th anniversary, he had as his secret guest... Um, Fanny Wright, who Francis Wright, who ended up being the most notorious um, activist and and kind of leftist figure of her moment, um, and she was in all likelihood she was his young mistress. She was at least accompanying him in a kind of a secret way, uh, and they exchanged very um, intimate letters. Um, and so, in a way, that relationship provides at the beginning of the book 
that link between the revolutionary moment and the history there, and then she is a, a kind of a starting point for a certain genealogy of the activism that moves forward from that point. I want to talk about Fanny right later on, um, but staying with this period of time, another Frenchman made a tour of the United States during that same period. Alexis de Tocqueville right. went back by, in 1835, published Democracy in America, his view for Europe of what was happening in the United States. How did uh, Americans view uh, his work and his observations of our society at that point? Was it impactful? Um, well, it's interesting. The, the, um, I guess Tocqueville was here at the same uh, moment, and his work has certainly been a lot more lasting. And I think if you, if you look at uh, Tocqueville, you, you actually get a lot of the same um, view of America that you get from... There was a Frenchman also traveling with um, Fanny Wright's party who was writing, who was describing the tour of Lafayette around the country, um, Augustus de Levasseur, and his, his journal was a, a major source for me in trying to piece together where Lafayette and, and Fanny Wright um, went. And it's, it's very interesting to see uh, a European view of institutions like American slavery at that moment and how that looks um, to Tocqueville um, and how it looked to this, this uh, gentleman who was traveling with Fanny Wright. It's the best—I mean, with that in her letters, it was the best way to kind of understand how it must have looked to an outsider, as well as to systems like, um, like uh, voting and, you know, kind of not exactly town halls, but community discussions around voting, that you get a lot of description of the practice of democracy in Tocqueville. Um, and I think, if anything, that, that is, it remains the kind of the most, um, perhaps the most important political document for looking at democracy in early America, because it's so uh, interesting to have that outsider perspective, which certainly Francis Wright was bringing to the table as well. On the flip side, you write that the quest for uh, democratic reforms in France provided a cautionary tale for Americans. How so? I think that Americans were concerned about the the threat that um, that a continuation that that any mention of a, of a kind of a continuation of the revolution would lead to the longer period of um, instability and also violence um, and potential regime change that France saw after their revolution. So there was a feeling that. Um, that the United States had established uh, a working system and social peace after the revolutionary period. And so there was actually a kind of a conservative period that was focused on kind of state-making, and it was also really saw also the de-secularization of America, meaning America, Americans were becoming more religious during this period. So there was a kind of a conservative turn, um, and part of that was to say what the founders did is final, and that this is not a social system that can be remade with every generation, and that we kind of need to just freeze in amber um, what we have. And yes, that France, the violence of France, continued to be a cautionary tale. I mean, really, even throughout the century, you have the Paris Commune in 1871, uh, which provided this, this scare around the idea of communism that really shaped the, the labor movement in, in the American context in the late century as well, and also just the mainstream response to those movements. To understand some of the changes in America, let's start with a snapshot of America as your story opens in the 1820s. Sure. Uh, how large was the country, how, the population, how many states at that point? There were only 24 states, um, and um, it, so it was, uh, it, it was not the United States that we know today. 
<clears throat> but the 1820s was a was a period where we were seeing a rapid westward expansion, and this is in part what was causing the the heightened sectional crisis around slavery. Um, there were two million enslaved people when the book opened, and that's a number that would uh, double by, before the Civil War. And starting in 1820, we started to have these very heated battles as new states like Missouri um, were came up for admission to the Union. So they had been territories, and as um, as settlers kind of moved west and as the country expanded, there was always the question of whether these new territories would be admitted as um, areas that would allow enslaved people to be owned as property and laborers, um, or whether they would be free states. And so with each one of these, it just triggered massive um, political disputes and the threat always of um, secession and of civil war, even as early as 1820. And so during that period, the government and Congress kind of brokered a series of compromises that managed to kick that can down the road for some decades. Um, but it felt like a very uh, incendiary, explosive kind of moment, um, even though there was just this insistence on kind of social peace, um, even punctuated by these moments where it felt like it could have kind of come, come apart at any time. If uh, slavery existed in the South and they were fighting over it in, in the expansion uh, areas, what was the state of, of African Americans in northern part of America at that time? Yes, yeah, so I've, I've started with, I try to <clears throat> point to the free communities in cities like Philadelphia and in Boston and in, and in New York City as really the, the beginning of the kind of activist communities that we, that I, the rest of the book traces. So, um, they were, they were robust, healthy populations of free people in all of these urban centers. Um, but they, to call them free is maybe a little bit misleading because their lives were um, very constrained. They were not enslaved, and many of them, you know, so there's a figure in the book, James Fortin, um, who, is a, who is a major uh, figure early on, and actually his children and grandchildren stay relevant through, throughout the narrative to the end of the book. Um, he had served in the Revolutionary War. His father and his grandfather had lived in Philadelphia and had not been enslaved. Um, he himself was a very wealthy businessman. He owned multiple properties. Um, but even for someone like James Fortin, who had the most privileged life imaginable for an African-American in the 1820s, um, his life was constrained. His opportunities for education was constrained. He was lucky that he lived in Philadelphia, where um, the Quakers were such a presence that he could get a good education. He had the opportunity to train for a trade. Um, but these were not opportunities that were open to all um, free African Americans. And there was also the constant threat of kidnapping. Um, one had to carry papers, um, and these papers had to be produced on demand at any time. And there was a threat that um, even though you were free and perhaps your family had, had been free for generations, that you might be sold south. Um, people were concerned about their children and their children's safety. Um, so I have tried to show how in that context of circumscription and of threat, these communities really flowered and they created community institutions like churches and like mutual aid societies, but also um, reading groups and, 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 um, and literacy groups. And um, they were building a community by which they could sustain one another in the context where the country was really not doing much to sustain them at all. So uh, in regards to women, what rights did women have in the 1820s and 30s? Well, uh, at that time, 
uh, it wasn't that it, not that many uh, women. Women didn't have the right to uh, certainly did not have the right to vote. They couldn't. There was nowhere that they could go to college. Um, it, there was coverture. The system of coverture still in marriage, meaning that women lost their legal identity. It was or it was subsumed under that of their husband. Um, so, you know, lawsuits, suing in a court of law, um, handling their own wealth, even if it was inherited wealth, all of these things were subsumed under their husband. Um, and there just weren't, there really weren't opportunities for lives other than um, a kind of a, a, a strict um, march from being a girl in your father's house to being a wife in your husband's house, um, whose identity was really um, secondary to men all the way through. And in this period, we see um, really striking change um, in that. And that's Francis Wright is kind of an early figure who really defies that picture. But by the end of the by the end of the century, of course, we have a very robust women's movement that has turned into a suffrage movement, kind of at the end of the book. You, you write of, and, and in other history projects we've done, uh, using a phrase called the women's sphere. People oh. would refer to being, this is outside the women's sphere, right. or I'm staying within the women's sphere. What does that mean, actually? So uh, in 19th century history, we think of the 19th century as a moment where um, an idea about gender and the organization of work and life emerged that people called the separate spheres. And it was just the idea that women's sphere was the home and the family, and domesticity, and all of these things in the 19th century are becoming increasingly romanticized and sentimentalized, and so this is women's sphere. Um, and men's sphere, especially with the rise of capitalism and, and the end of, um, of a purely kind of agrarian society where families were a unit of production, once you have men working outside the home, then the idea is that the public is the realm for men and for politics and for wage labor. Um, Etc. And so, so the idea of the separate spheres um, was, of course, always <clears throat> to some degree a myth because there were always working women, um, and this was a kind of elite discourse that also didn't apply to African American women and immigrant women. Um, but it was the it, it's the kind of like standard gender and economic organization that one associates with the time. So you write that the activism was in three major areas of hmm. American society. What were they? Well, the ones that that I have focused on in the book are um, activism around slavery and race, around gender and sex, and around um, labor, work, economic issues, wealth, property, the, that sort of thing. But they all seem like they have overlapped with one another. Absolutely. And my, the part of the, what I tried to contribute with this book is really to focus on the points of overlap rather than to do a deep history of any particular movement. Um, but rather to focus on perhaps unexpected um, confluences between these movements. But also, this was a moment uh, for multi-issue activism. So really, the personnel who would be uh, the leaders of one movement, would they would be very involved with the other movements as well. And usually, one uh, issue was an entry into many others. So um, once one had been radicalized or politicized around slavery, for instance, <clears throat> then it might lead you to question things that are seemingly unrelated, like religious observance, or it might lead you to change your diet and stop eating meat and animal products, for instance. This was the trajectory of many of the activists in this book, where um, through this process, nothing was off the table. There was just a broader interrogation. What would you say would be the percentage of the population that were in this activist group? Um, and were there any demographics consistent among them? Were they all urban centers <coughs> or or uh, country folk, whatever. 
that's difficult to say about percentage of the population. I mean, part of the part of the story that I want to tell in the book is how um, regular people came to feel that it was time to do something. So as we push toward the Civil War on the issue of slavery, for instance, that number grows. Uh, it, well, the the timeline there is actually kind of complex because before, say, eighteen thirty, um, even in the South, in many places, there was a feeling that um, it was an unfortunate inheritance and that. Many people thought, this, this is really not right, but we kind of have a tiger by the tail or a wolf by the ears, as Jefferson said, and there's no clear way out of it. Um, but after 1830, in part because there was the rise of a radicalized anti-slavery movement, <clears throat> the South really started to dig in and say, no, we will not grant that this is immoral. We will not grant that it's sinful. Um, and they were willing to defend it not only as an economic arrangement, but as a culture and a worldview. Um, and so um, the question after that point is, once the issue is really polarized, then how does persuasion work? How, how does, how does anti-slavery kind of spread a message so that it goes from a really fringe position in the North um, to something that is mainstreamed, where uh, it's not to say that all Northerners were abolitionists, but enough of a tide turned that, I mean, the country was willing to fight a civil war and to... Um, celebrate the end of slavery. Um, and even other movements, in terms of thinking about how many people were involved, even a movement, like the, the, the book talks about two waves of utopian socialism, the first under Robert Owen and the second under Charles Fourier. Um, even that, that the wave of socialism under Charles Fourier, the, the leading historian of that movement, estimates at least 100,000 participants. Um, so, and anti-slavery was much bigger than that. Um, so even by 1840, there were 200,000 members um, of the kind of the biggest national anti-slavery group. Um, and so we are, we're talking about many, many, many people. And all of these issues were, um, when they started, considered really wacky, out there, fringe movements. Um, that, that, but they, their success is in part that we see these numbers kind of creeping up. And that now, many of the ideas in the book still seem out there, like the abolition of marriage, um, et cetera. But for many of, many of the ideas now seem like common sense. So it's really the trajectory from a group of activists that grow to a movement that ultimately become mainstreamed over, over a long period of time. Right, or that at least hit a critical mass and that, they, that they're able to convince people um, to... They're, they're, willing, they're able to convince people to change their minds, but also they're, they're able to put a narrative out there that makes people think that it might be time not just to hold private views um, that you maybe discuss with your family or that you, know, you hold privately and you agree with the thing you read in the newspaper, but actually to act in, in the world. And that's been an interesting question to me is what, what were those moments where people became outraged enough to want to do something? So you tell some great stories about real characters during sure. this period, and I want to get a few of them on the record so we can entice people to, to the book. Uh, some of them are very well-known. Everyone studied in their high school history books, uh, and I want to start there with the well-known names John Brown. Yes. Uh, what inspired John Brown's radicalism? Uh, John Brown's father had been an abolitionist, and um, he was a, just a very singular, uh, very orthodox Christian who um, believed that slavery was a terrible sin in the eyes of God. He was very motivated by um, religion in his anti-slavery views. Um, and 
he felt that he would be God's instrument. I mean, he felt that everyone was called to be God's instrument against slavery. Um, but he had grown up, um, he had grown up in an anti-slavery family. Um, he read publications like The Liberator, which was William Lloyd Garrison's um, anti-slavery journal. And he had relationships with African Americans. So he moved to an area of upstate New York um, to be part of a project called Timbuktu uh, that Garrett Smith, the, the philanthropist and activist Garrett Smith, <clears throat> was running where he was giving away large parcels of land to free families in the hope that they would meet the property requirements for voting um, and also that they could create sort of sustainable lifestyles and, and, and um, that their children would have a way to make money and to support themselves. And um, he participated in that, and he started slowly over time to recruit black leaders and also um, white financial backers and started telling people over the course of decades that he had an eventual plan to go to the heart of the slave power and to um, basically overthrow what he saw as a kind of a usurping American government that was upholding slavery when it was opposed to American values and to Christianity. And this is the kind of the tension, again, that the title of the book tries to capture and that we were talking about a little earlier with the Declaration of Independence, that all of the people in this book really saw themselves as the real Americans and as the representatives of real American values, even though the mainstream saw them as a, a threat to those values. And, of course, John Brown was executed um, as a traitor. Um, so After his famous raid at Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. Yes, uh, that's right. And, in fact, yesterday, December 2nd, was, is the anniversary of that execution. Um, and it was a, a major turning point for how people felt about slavery. Um, and it was one of those moments that I was just referencing where a critical mass of people thought, if John Brown is willing to do this, then surely I can stand up and say that I oppose slavery. Um, so, yes, he did. Uh, he, he carried out this kind of grassroots organizing campaign, not on his own, but with the help of a number of um, black leaders in various cities and also in Canada. Um, he traveled to Canada. He held a convention there with um, black leaders, many of whom were in exile from the United States. Um, he, had a, he had six financial backers uh, in Boston who are called the Secret Six and who were um, willing to float him money for weapons and to, um, to, for whatever plan he might have. He was very secretive about it. Even the men who marched south with him didn't necessarily know exactly what they were going to do before they did it. Um, but yes, he's the, he's the most famous, uh, he's probably the most famous radical of this period, I would say, um, and, and attempted a, a coup d'etat that failed on the day that he, I mean, so basically he was able to hold a federal uh, arsenal for a couple of days. The Marines marched in and killed a number of his men and um, trapped him and imprisoned him, and the ones that remained were executed, although some escaped. Um, but it was one of these cases where it seemed like a failure in the moment, but that it, it worked a long-term success. But he was willing to murder people on behalf of his cause. How should we remember him in history? Hmm. That's right. I, he was, and he killed people in Kansas. Uh, his, uh, before, the, before the raid at Harper's Ferry, um, he, his claim to fame was the Potawatomi Massacre. Um, there was a period in history, in the history of Kansas and in the history of the nation, that people call Bleeding Kansas, um, and this was one of a series uh, in the 1850s of actual violent skirmishes that were going on in the United States. Although civil war had not been declared and would not be declared until 1861, 
um, in many places on the ground, there were actual armed battles over this question of slavery. And Kansas was, Kansas was a big one. So um, he was there. He was the leader of a group of men. And he was carrying out, he carried out at least one um, pretty graphic massacre of pro-slavery men in Kansas, um, in part as retribution for the caning of Charles Sumner in the Senate. Um, and um, he was. He, he, in another raid, he killed a, a, a slaveholder in Missouri. Um, and at Harper's Ferry, his men uh, managed to kill some local officials. Um, and he felt that he, he felt that he was doing good. And this was also, it's a major moment of, of uh, a moment of change in the abolitionist movement, because before John Brown, um, many abolitionists had been sworn pacifists. There was a, a movement called non-resistance um, that interests me very much, and it's associated with William Lloyd Garrison and the kind of Boston contingent of abolitionists. Um, but increasingly after 1850, anti-slavery activists were willing to entertain the idea that violence was a legitimate response uh, to slavery. And, of course, the government ultimately took that view. You mentioned him a couple times, William Lloyd Garrison. You describe him in the book as one of the most consequential activists in American history. Why is that? That's right. Um, he was, uh, he's generally considered the kind of the head of the anti-slavery movement that emerged around 1830. Um, he took his cues from an, a pre-existing anti-slavery energy and movement among free people of color uh, in the North. And this is what set him apart from previous um, white Americans who had wanted to do something about slavery, um, is that he was really working with communities of color, and he was, um, he was backed by communities of color financially and kind of interpersonally to do the work he wanted to do. Um, and he, he, they were his mentors, and he was, he was willing to accept their leadership um, and so what emerges around 1830 is a new version of anti-slavery activism in the United States that is no longer willing to talk about compensating slave owners, for instance. Um, before this, it, we had had some anti-slavery organizations that had called for gradual, a process of gradual emancipation and also the compensation um, for the loss of property um, that, that enslavers would experience with the abolition of slavery. But after around 1829, with the publication of David Walker's Appeal, which was an important kind of inspirational predecessor text for, for Garrison, um, and then with the, um, the founding of his Liberator in 1831, 1831 was also the, the, the year that, uh, of Nat Turner's revolt in Virginia. And so right around this moment, around 1830, people usually date the emergence of uh, radical immediatism, which was a call for it, the immediate end of slavery, come what may, no compensation, um, no excuses, and, and also the, the demand that, um, that African Americans stay in the United States and not be deported um, to Liberia or to any other, you know, colony that was, there, there were these plans to deport free African Americans, and in fact, many African Americans left the United States um, in this lead up, but Garrison very clearly said, this is their country. Um, and from that point, the Liberator, his his newspaper, served as the kind of the main organ for the movement. He was a very effective organizer, and he founded. He was part of a group that founded a national organization that brought together um, black leaders and um, their kind of like newly emergent white allies. Um, and they would meet in New York City, and they would come from all over the North. 
and um, like I said, the numbers started growing. So that so that after the organization had existed for ten years, you had two hundred thousand members. Um, although they did ten years in, they had a kind of a major falling out in eighteen forty. So two names we're going to hear a lot about as we get closer to the hundredth anniversary of women's suffrage right. uh, is Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Yes. Um, one takes away from your book the fact that these people who managed to uh, stay known in current history books are much more complex characters than the couple of lines that we learn about them. Right. Uh, these two women are examples of that. What makes them more complex? You talk about how they were willing to uh, denigrate the rights of African Americans mm. in their pursuit of rights for women. Can you explain that? Yes, uh, and it's it's interesting because both of them had really come out of the anti-slavery context. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's cousin was Garrett Smith, who I just mentioned was a major um, anti-slavery philanthropist and activist, um, and her husband was was um, a, a very active career abolitionist. Um, and Susan B. Anthony, they met in they actually met at an anti-slavery convention. These two women, um, and the story of the collaboration between those movements and the kind of emergence of a woman's movement from anti-slavery, um, it's, it's one of those really inspiring moments in the history of American activism of coalitional thinking and um, this kind of multi-issue interest in freedom and justice. Um, but as we go through the decades that the book covers, it turns into one of the most kind of appalling <laughs> failures of that kind of work um, when... For instance, you have a figure like um, Frederick Douglass, who um, at the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, which is normally, people normally think of that as the beginning of the women's movement that ends up being the suffrage movement. Um, the women at that convention were, were ready and poised to abandon suffrage as a goal. They thought it was too out there and that it would make their movement ridiculous. Um, they had other things that they wanted. They wanted to be able to be public authorities. They wanted um, equal pay for equal work. They wanted educational opportunities. They wanted to be able to speak as religious authorities. Um, they were concerned about the kind of psychological warfare uh, that makes women feel inferior. Um, but the vote seemed very, I don't know, they, they thought that, that, that it would just be too much. And Frederick Douglass stood up and said no. He was the one who really saved it in the debate and said, no, this is the right by which you can um, attain the others. Like, if you get the right of suffrage, then you will be able to have a stake in politics, and elected officials will have to listen to you. Um, and so, indeed, they kept suffrage on the platform. And really, the, when we talk about Stan and Anthony now, we know them as um, the leaders of, of the suffrage movement. But in the post-war moment, um, this kind of multi-issue... Um, Activism that was that was that had really forged these movements in the antebellum period turned into, on their part at least, a kind of a land grab for rights. Um, they were really furious when it became clear that black men were going to get the right to vote before white women were, um, and they turned increasingly to really virulent racist rhetoric in their publications and in their speeches. And they were arguing for women's suffrage um, instead of black male suffrage, and were willing to, to reproduce the most kind of terrible uh, rhetoric to make that claim. Um, and so, yes, we definitely see a falling out in that moment between people who had worked together for decades, including Frederick Douglass. So how should we remember them as the anniversary draws near? I mean, I think that we need... A, I think that, that um, in the suffrage commemorations, uh, which are very important... 
I think we should, I think that we have to think of, I mean, really all of the figures in this book, I have tried to um, suggest that they are all flawed um, and that they all had blind spots and that some of them had uh, grievous ideological <laughs> errors that informed their whole politics, much like Elizabeth Cady Stanton did. Um, but that, on the other hand, she was a breathtaking activist, that what she accomplished was um, amazing, and that we should remember her in that light uh, um, as having uh, that kind of, uh, uh, that as a person and as, as in terms of her single ideology, um, I think we should be ambivalent about the role that racism played in, in the women's movement, in the white women's movement at this time. Um, but I think that we should that we should sort of fight for the continuation and for the broadening of its aims, just in the in the same way that they wanted to move forward from um, the revolution. I mean, we kind of have to be the ones to fight for the suffrage rights that they nominally gained, and also for the expansion of that movement beyond just mere um, voting rights, and also to a more a sort of broadly inclusive movement. So, returning to the the folks who did not survive in the history books, yes. Fanny Fanny Wright, whom you've mentioned a few times. Um, how famous was she in America in her day? She was infamous. Uh, when, she was, when she was doing projects uh, like her Neshoba colony, and when she, uh, when she was initially involved with um, Robert Owen's pro project at New Harmony, I don't think she would have been particularly well-known. But after she defended her Neshoba, um, her Neshoba project was, a, it was, in, it was outside of Memphis, and she had decided that she would create this experiment in which enslaved people could work out the cost of their purchase and that she would train them and educate them in some way and that she would ultimately, they would pay for their own passage out of the country. Um, so this was a flawed scheme. And part of the tragedy of Fannie Wright is that she came right up against the free communities who were already working on these questions, but she did not sort of look to them to figure out what to do. She wanted her own grand adventure. Um, so after she published a defense of Neshoba in which she, um, it was clear that she not only wanted to end slavery, she also was a free thinker, meaning that she was an atheist. Um, and she also thought that marriage should be abolished, um, that w men and women should be equal. Um, and ultimately she was also advocating, uh, interracial sex, not just social equality, but she thought that interracial sex was, was um, a, a perfectly legitimate way to imagine the end of racial stratification in the country. All of these ideas were basically the third rail of, of American thought. And so after that point, she was, she was notorious. And so for the rest of the century, just the name of, of Fanny Wright, Fanny Wrightism, being a Fanny Wright man, um, every, I mean, even long after she's dead, this is, a, this is a kind of a refrain that the press and others will use um, to say that anyone who's interested in progressive politics believes in all of these kind of very fringe at the time um, issues. And so it was used as a scare tactic, uh, mainly. So after that, she was quite well known. And you say today she's just memorialized in a highway marker outside of <laughs> Memphis. Yes. Um, and she's another, I mean, all of the figures in this book, they are kind of ultimately ambivalent figures when you look at, at what they accomplished. Um, she is an early kind of cautionary tale in the book because, of course, she actually purchased and enslaved people in her, in her plan to free them. Um, and she left them there for a couple of years. Well, she went on a speaking tour. She moved to New York City. She was editing a radical magazine and um, sort of working with the labor movement on kind of working men's rights. 
Um, and eventually she finally went back to Memphis and took the people that she legally owned um, to Haiti. Um, but, but she's kind of a, I mean, she's, she's one of these, these figures. She was, she was a, again, like a really breathtaking, unusual life, um, but ultimately um, pretty flawed. Who was Anthony Burns, and why do you think he deserves a marker on Boston's Freedom Trail? Anthony Burns was, an, was a man who was a fugitive from slavery, and he had made it to Boston, and he had been living in Boston for a couple of years uh, when, in 1854, he was leaving work, and um, a slave catcher that had been sent by his enslaver in Virginia to, to come and get him tapped him on the shoulder, and some guys jumped out and detained him. And um, this was the third very publicized, very famous fugitive slave case in the city of Boston. Um, after, so after the, the Compromise of 1850, um, part of that compromise between the North and the South, it was another one of these attempts to forestall civil war by maintaining the balance um, between slave states and free states in the Union. And part of what the North had agreed to was a stricter fugitive slave law that had criminalized um, aid to fugitives. So essentially everyone in the North was a deputized slave catcher in a certain way, um, that if you offered help, if you didn't go to the authorities, that you were aiding and abetting uh, a fugitive, which was a crime. And so this became uh, a huge question, and this was the third one of these cases that was, that was um, really famous in Boston. And it was also the home of the largest uh, anti-slavery movement in the country. And um, the question was, would the officials, would, would local officials in Boston um, bow down to the slave power and bow down to this federal law, um, even if it was wrong? Um, would they, increasingly, people in Boston and in the North were feeling that, no, that they were willing to commit civil disobedience and that they had in mind what they called the higher law. Um, they felt that there was a higher law written in the human conscience and that if the Constitution and the Supreme Court and the President of the United States told you to do something immoral, that um, you should break that law. And you said 50,000 people came out to protest in Boston. That's right. So he was, I mean, first of all, they, they held him in the courthouse. So he had not committed a crime, but he was being detained in, in the courthouse. And um, so before the protest, before that, that 50,000 strong protest, there was a direct assault on, his, on the courthouse where he was being held captive. So uh, in Faneuil Hall, very famous, still remains a famous building in Boston, there was an anti-slavery rally led by um, Wendell Phillips, uh, and Theodore Parker, and um, they sort of rallied, rallied the crowd to flood down the street to court into Court Square. And there was a group there that they had hatchets, and they someone had climbed up and extinguished the streetlight. Um, and they eventually found a big battering ram, and they um, they smashed it through the door of the courthouse. And they came into direct conflict with the police. Um, one of the men who had been deputized to guard the prisoner was killed um, in this scuffle. And this was a kind of a big moment because, as I said, in Boston, at least, uh, abolitionism was very closely associated with pacifism. Um, and so this was the first moment when, um, when we really see abolitionists directly kind of willing to um, be violent to free one enslaved man. And after that, yes, the city was essentially under martial law. So um, the president was Franklin Pierce, and he was a New Englander, <clears throat> a New Englander himself. 
but he was one, basically all of the presidents of the 1850s were Northerners who were friendly to the Confederacy or what would become the Confederacy, were friendly to, to the slave power. Um, they were called dough-faced Democrats. That was the, the, the not nice term for them. Um, and he sent in the, to the militia to, or he sent in federal troops to back local militias and to occupy downtown Boston. And so they had the weapons of war and they trained them on civilians who continued to turn out every day um, while there was a trial. The trial was just to determine if, was to determine his identity only. Um, and then on the day that he was to be uh, remanded to slavery in Virginia and they marched him out of the building, yes, 50,000 people were packing the street and hanging from every building and um, hanging the American flag upside down, and they had constructed a coffin and labeled it Liberty, and they were lowering it out of the second floor window um, and booing and hissing. And it was, you know, in the, in the reports that, or in the firsthand accounts that you read, it was for a number of Bostonians the first time that they felt that they were on the other side of the law. And it was another one of those moments of uh, radicalization where they thought, um, if my belief that that is a man and not a piece of property means that I am breaking the law in this moment, then I guess I'll have to break the law. So they saw for the first time institutions like the courts and the military, uh, et cetera, as being on the wrong side of the issue and perhaps on, on another side of an issue. And so they were increasingly willing to, um, to take a revolutionary step. A broad question, but how sure. did mainstream America react to the radicals? Uh, and what kind of pushback was uh, evidenced? Well, even in that, even just from the Anthony Burns protest, even, I mean, the media in Boston and New York and in the North called them traitors and said that they should be not only arrested but tried for treason and potentially executed for, um, for killing a, a deputized federal marshal um, and also for defying the Constitution. So they were regarded as, um, as traitors who wanted to tear the union of the Constitution apart um, and they met with opposition of every kind. So they met with, I mean, the press enjoyed kind of lampooning them, but the press also called outright for violent opposition. So you have in many cases, and this is in the North, you have the media sort of saying <clears throat> there's, these anti-slavery people are going to be having a convention, say, in Philadelphia, um, and all the lovers of the Constitution in America should turn out and let them know how you feel about that. And so then you would have massive mobs um, there was a there was Pennsylvania Hall was a um, a beautiful new lecture space that had just been built. It was burned to the ground by one of these mobs. Um, Anti-slavery activists were killed. They were assaulted. They were they had things thrown at them. Um, there was also opposition from um, there were crackdowns on free speech. So there was a gag rule uh, in Congress for a number of years, meaning that any anti-slavery speech or petition would be tabled without discussion. And that kind of clampdown on free speech continues in the, at the end of the century with um, anti-obscenity laws. So people who were trying to circulate birth control information, they could be arrested and put in prison on these uh, obscenity charges. Um, and there was religious opposition. I mean, there was basically, there was opposition from, in, in every way from, from mainstream America all the way through. What was the role of churches in all of this? <clears throat> well, it's interesting. Um, there, part of the reason that anti-slavery activism opened up uh, into um, uh, kind of questions about organized religion had to do with, with the role that Christianity played as a, either as a kind of a quietist and, and, and non-committed uh, voice in the slavery question, or even um, it was often used 
the Bible and, and, and scriptures were often cited for pro-slavery, uh, in pro-slavery rhetoric. And um, so one group that, and one kind of impulse that, that, I've, that I've been interested in um, was come-outerism, what they called come-outerism. And this was the idea that um, people had to come out of the churches um, because there was a feeling that if you were a Christian church and if you were not uh, taking direct aim at this humanitarian crisis and this moral disaster, then really what were you doing? Um, so um, there's one activist that I talk about, Stephen Foster. He was particularly famous for um, <clears throat> doing direct action protests in churches. So in New Hampshire and in other places in Maine, um, he would come into churches on a Sunday morning and he would sit quietly with the congregation uh, through the beginning of the service and he would um, then wait for the minister to begin, at which point he would stand up and interrupt the service and start giving a loud, barn-burning abolitionist speech until he was physically removed and ejected um, from the church building and thrown out and usually beat up and had his clothes torn, etc. Um, and so he was one of many uh, anti-slavery activists who were um, really active against kind of the organi organized practice of Christianity. But throughout the book, I mean, one of the interventions I've tried to make is that um, previously historical accounts of, of reformers in this period tend to think of the Second Great Awakening as a, a main like, motor for a kind of reformist zeal. But I think it's important to notice um, really how secular these groups were and, in fact, that Many of them felt that religion was a conservatizing force in American life. And this is true of people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, it's true of Martin Delaney, who is, uh, was a, um, a black nationalist and then a Civil War officer. Um, many of them spoke out about the role that religion can play um, in kind of quieting social unrest, and they spoke out against it for that reason. Um, and even people like John Brown, who was really devoutly religious, he wanted a kind of alternative liberation theology that mainstream Christians did not recognize. So uh, we fought the Civil War, obviously, then uh, African-American men got the right to vote. Uh, ultimately, women had suffrage after the turn of the next century. So did these movements peter out as their objectives were changed, hmm. or what happened so that society moved on to another period? Hmm. It's an interesting question. And it's what's particularly interesting about that is that suffrage dominates our understanding, I think, of, of reform movements and of protest movements now in the 19th century. We are, you know, have, it, this is the suffrage centennial, um, and it's also the, it, the 150th anniversary of, of the, 50th, the 15th Amendment um, next year um, for black male suffrage. Um, and so this particular legal reform, this constitutional reform, dominates our understanding of the, of, of the work that they were doing. And these groups did, after a certain moment, want particular legal reforms, but they wanted something so much broader. They wanted a cultural transformation, um, and they wanted they wanted to educate the conscience of Americans. And so, in that sense, their work was kind of partially achieved, but was never fully achieved. But in a certain way, I've come to see those suffrage moments as almost um, steam valves. Um, that that when these groups did accomplish suffrage that it almost came to seem like that was the goal in itself. Um, but, of course, the reason that these disenfranchised groups wanted the vote was to leverage political power to achieve other aims. So merely, the mere right to vote was itself not the prize, right? Um, the, the, the goal was to be able to um, speak for themselves as American citizens. 
And um, voting rights themselves, as we've seen, I mean, we're, we're in a moment of um, a kind of a crisis of confidence in elections in America and also of widespread disenfranchisement. I mean, we've seen how easily voting rights themselves can be stripped away, how easy it is just to not let people exercise the right that, that we presumably have to vote. Um, and so I think we have to, when we think about the legacy of those movements, we have to look to a couple of things. One, um, what is it that they wanted to use the vote to get? And have, um, how, where are we with these issues? Um, and two, also, how did these disenfranchised groups for so long exert change without the vote? Because it may be that uh, with these waves of disenfranchisement that we have to think again about how to make social change um, beyond the ballot box. In your, in your acknowledgments, you described this period of time that, in the book as shocking, and you've mm. described a few of the shocking incidents, um, occasionally funny and profoundly consequential. You made the case for profoundly consequential. Hmm. Tell me an occasionally funny <laughs> story. Well, I, um, I think the free lovers are ultimately kind of play the comic relief in the book, um, although um, many of them were, were very serious, at least for a time. <clears throat> um, there, there is a man named uh, Marx Lazarus, who is a, a character in the book, who has a very interesting biography. He's, he was, he was um, the son of a, of a very wealthy, slave-holding um, Jewish Southern family. Uh, but he came north, and he um, joined up with the um, utopian socialists. He lived at Brook Farm for a time. He, lived, he had a commune here in New York City for a time, um, a brownstone commune. Um, and he was part of a wave of reformers who followed the Graham diet, meaning that they were vegans, and they also avoided alcohol and caffeine and sugar and really anything with any um, flavor at all. Did they no give pepper. us the Graham cracker? Yes, Sylvester Graham. <laughs> yes, so Sylvester Graham was himself a, a, a conservative, really, but his most ardent followers, probably much to his chagrin, um, were all, I mean, the characters in my book loved um, loved his diet and many followed his diet um, and and many were m many were vegan for other reasons um, but um, so he had he had a commune here in New York City and they were into uh, the water cure they were some of the only 19th century Americans who believed in regular bathing um, and they ate raw vegan foods and they wanted to abolish marriage this was their other big um, big issue and so he wrote um, this long 400-page tome. He wrote many, he wrote many books, um, and he he was really kind of wacky and out there. Um, but his his most famous book um, was called Love Versus Marriage, and it was about how um, passional attraction, as they called it, um, was should not be limited to marriage, <clears throat> and indeed that marriage was bad for communities, bad for citizenship. Um, and should be abolished. And this book was debated in the New York Tribune by people like Henry James Sr. and Horace Greeley. Um, and it was, you know, in other words, like fairly well known. Um, and uh, but this whole time, he was kind of panicking over um, nocturnal emissions. He was worried about losing semen. And so this is a big story in the book about these these kind of free lovers who are ultimately afraid of sex. Um, so that's part of the comic relief. We have about. Two minutes left. I want to get a little bit on the record about sure. yourself. You teach English. You're a professor of English yep. at uh, UMass Boston. Well, this is a history book. So how yes. do those two fields come together for you? Um, I, my, uh, I've always done uh, had an archival and a historicist approach to, um, to the 19th century. And literary scholars um, 
we look at a number of texts in addition to imaginative literature, so things like um, legal decisions or scientific texts, these are all on the, on the table for literary scholars. Um, and also in this period, that, that kind of line between literature and, or at least between print culture and politics is pretty blurry as we see with things like The Liberator and other, the, the radical press that, that uh, arises at this period. Uh, the best-selling novel of the century was Uncle Tom's Cabin, an anti-slavery novel. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so my, my courses and my, my work has, is kind of about cultural history, with literature being a part of that as one discourse among many. And uh, who got you interested in academics in the first place? I hope it's not a long story because we have a minute and a half. <laughs> uh, no, I mean I will say that my that, that just my teaching and my that teaching at, at UMass Boston, which is the um, the most diverse institution in New England and, and Boston's only public research university, um, I had the opportunity to collaborate with the Boston Public Library and some other institutions that have amazing collections uh, on the history of radical protests. They have pikes used by John Brown and um, other. Um, other artifacts like that, um, commune records, and that it, really that the, my experience of teaching um, teaching this history to the people of Boston is what made me interested in writing the book. Well, the book is called American Radicals, and congratulations to you because it made the Smithsonian's top 10 history books for 2019. Uh, the, the subtitle, How 19th Century Protests Shaped the Nation. Molly Jackson, the author, thank you for spending an hour with me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.